When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You were eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under, as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Adam. I am the director of 5th through 12th grade ministry and co-director of the Emerging Leaders uh, program here at Lakeland, and I'm super excited to be back with you for one more week of Jonah. This is it, week four of four. Now, before we specifically dig into our text for this morning, I want to say something more generally about the Bible passages that tend to challenge us. And the process of preparing our hearts to hear these kind of passages well. Now, I've spent a lot more time sitting where you are sitting right now than I have standing where I am standing right now. But having now spent time in both places, um, it has occurred to me that there is one thing very similar and there is one thing very different about the two places when it comes to the hearing of God's word, and specifically the hearing of a hard and challenging word. So first, what's the same? Both the preacher and preachees, and yes, I did make that word up, are being challenged and formed by God's word. Now this can be easy to overlook when we're sitting out there, but I can assure you, That God is speaking to me and transforming me through the words that I encounter in my very own sermons. Now, what's different? From this spot up here, from the pulpit, multiple weeks are spent thinking about, processing, taking to heart the words of God in each message And each passage being preached. God has a lot of time to work on the hearts 
of the people standing up here if we will let him. However, from that spot out there, we are likely hearing God's message as revealed through the passage for the very first time right then and there as the sermon is being preached. Now this requires us to hear the message, understand it, and attempt to let it seep down into our hearts in a way that might actually be able to change us all instantaneously. It's a flood of information, lessons, challenges, exhortations, encouragements, all together, all at once. That's a difficult position to be put in because when we're left to process all of that very quickly and for the first time, our minds can play tricks on us. When we're left to react out of our outer selves, our defense mechanisms get the first crack at processing and sorting through the message. This usually results in denial and deflection. Ah, that's not about me. That is about someone else I know. I really wish my friend could have been here to hear that sermon. She really struggles with that problem. Or it results in anger and resentment. How dare you accuse me of having that issue? Now again, I am not saying any of this accusingly. I am saying it because I know that when I'm sitting where you are sitting, I do this all the time. I hear God speak a word against selfishness in a message, and I think, whew, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. I hear God speak out against fear, and I think to myself, man, I'm glad I've passed all that by. Don't have to worry about that one anymore. This morning's passage is a hard word. It's a hard word not because God comes across angry or frustrated in the passage. Right? I mean, we saw in what we just read. I mean, God is actually quite patient and gentle with Jonah in this chapter. It's a hard word because what Jonah is dealing with, what his issue is in this chapter is universal to the human condition. And our instinct as humans to being shown any flaw or heart issue in ourselves is to deny and deflect and to defensively shut down. But when we do this, none of the words or the lessons or even the encouragements can break through our outer shell, our protection, and to get in here in a way that can actually begin to change us. Now, my encouragement for us all this morning, and I assure you that I am right here in this with you, is to avoid this mistake. If we trust that our God is for us, not against us, and that he loves us more than we could possibly ever fathom, And everything that we've read and discussed so far in the book of Jonah has absolutely asserted that those things are true. Then let's soften our outer shells this morning and be open 
to the Holy Spirit lovingly correcting us for our own good and for the good of God's kingdom. Are you with me? All right, let's do it. So I'm a huge sports fan, and I have been ever since I can remember. You could say that I've spent most of my life living and dying with my teams and the outcomes of their games. Now, sometimes this has resulted in really great high highs, such as the Royals winning the 2015 World Series, right? We still don't even remember that. That did happen, right? But based on the teams that I do tend to root for and the nature of sports in general, it's also resulted in some really low lows. My heart has been crushed over and over and over again to the point that, to be honest, I am a really, really negative and pessimistic person when it comes to all of my teams. You can ask almost anyone who knows me. They will confirm that is true. But this isn't my biggest issue. Negativity and pessimism are almost always indicative of something deeper and more severe going on. I've also struggled with the problem of anger in the heat of the moment of a pressure-packed game that my team is involved in. This has gotten better for me, but it's still there. But again, even anger isn't my biggest issue. Anger is almost always indicative of something deeper and more severe going on. I've come to realize, and fairly recently, that the craziest thing about my sports fanaticism is how I treat the fans of the teams um, that are my opponents. Now, before you go getting the wrong idea, I'm not a trash talker. I never get in people's faces. I don't even go online to troll people um, about games or anything like that. This is entirely about my inner thoughts. How I treat in the deep, dark places of my own heart the nameless, faceless fans of these teams Let me give you some examples from my life, how this might play out. I might watch for bad driving from people whose vehicles have the logo stickers on their windows of a particular team I don't care for. I might make incredibly sweeping statements about all of the fans of fill-in-the-blank team, such as, ah, Raiders fans are all alike. They throw batteries. And they dress up like Mad Max Fury Road as something to aspire to. I constantly look for reasons to rationalize and explain away things on my own side and then turn around and attack even very similar things on the other side. And worst of all, I might even go onto a team's online message board, an opposing team, after a really tough, grueling loss, just to watch and bask in their misery. Don't encourage me. This is not good. This is, this is not funny. 
I'm afraid to say I did this somewhat recently, and it wasn't even a game any of my teams were even involved in. Now, I don't want to trivialize what we're talking about this morning by suggesting that me being an irritating sports fan is exactly the same as what Jonah is dealing with in this passage today. But I do want us to see that, A, how easy it is to slip into the kind of negative heart posture toward others, and, B, how dangerous that slippery slope can become with regard to the state of our hearts. So let's take a deeper look at our passage for this morning. Now, throughout the first three chapters of the book of Jonah, it wasn't entirely clear, right? It hasn't been clear exactly why Jonah has been running from the Ninevites. If we were giving him some benefit of the doubt, perhaps we could conclude that he was simply afraid of them. To be fair, their society reflected a lot of wickedness and cruelty. The history books tell us that the Assyrians displayed outrageously violent and vengeful behavior, engaging in torture and mockery of their enemies. Let's not gloss over that fact. And even at this point in history, before the Assyrian Empire invaded Israel, the people of Israel absolutely considered them a menace and a threat to their peace and their livelihood. However, we see in this chapter that Jonah didn't run away due to his fear of the Ninevites. He ran away because of his hatred of them. Jonah saw what he perceived to be a wicked, cruel people, and he hated them. He saw them as less than human, less valuable even than the plant that was giving him shade at the end of this chapter. But we can go even further here in assessing Jonah's big issue. Because it's not just that he hated the Ninevites that was causing him to run away. He ran away because he anticipated God's mercy for them, and he hated that too. One of the questions the book of Jonah asks us is this. Do our hearts beat with God's in a way that we would gladly anticipate God saving people and blessing people very different from ourselves, even our enemies. Now let's remember all the way back to chapter 1 when we said that Jonah was a prophet. Someone whose job was to know and understand the heart and will of God for his people on such a deep and personal level that he was able to speak to the people on behalf of God himself. But here in chapter 4, we see such a disparity between God's heart and Jonah's heart with regard to this situation that it's fair to wonder whether Jonah really ever knew or understood God at all. And if we're going to be honest here this morning, we have to ask ourselves, might we also be failing to know and love God and to desire to follow him 
to, to lean into his heart for the world. Might we, even those among us who make regular church attendance a part of our weekly routine, be completely failing to reflect God's heart as manifested in his will for the world? Do we have the character of God's love and mercy imprinted on our hearts? Let's go back to my own story very quickly. What's so dangerous about my sports fandom? What has caused me to root not only for my teams, but to openly root against others? This is not good for my soul. It has caused me to treat rivals as enemies in my heart and with my lips. It has caused me to create my own world inside my mind in which I am always virtuous and my enemy is always evil. It's me versus you. Us versus them. And this is the state of the world around us right now, isn't it? This is what we are surrounded by 24 7 365, and it absolutely threatens at each very moment to pull us into the muck and the mire and the darkness. This is the state of Jonah's heart when God confronts him in chapter 4 and says, To be honest, Jonah, you claim to love me and speak my words, but you don't even know me. Now stay with me here. We're in this together, I promise you. God, helping us, help us to soften these outer shells and speak your words down into our hearts in this moment. We're entering another election cycle. Now look, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I'm not here to tell you how involved or not involved to be in the political fray. None of that is my concern at all this morning. My concern is that the current political system in general, as a whole, seeks to divide people, turning them against each other, creating a me versus you, us versus them, I am virtuous, my enemy is evil view of the world. And that is not the road to salvation or joy, or peace. It's not the path to God's heart. It's not how God views the world. It's the path to sitting under a plant that just died, arguing with God about it, very far away from his heart for us and the world as a whole. So let's do our best to watch ourselves to notice our anger, to notice our defensiveness, to keep an eye out for the times that we want to lash out, we want to accuse, we want to set ourselves against others and simply ask ourselves, am I reflecting God's heart for the world right now? 
We have now finally reached our last unexpected event in the book of Jonah. And it is this. Jonah's lack of mercy and forgiveness for the Ninevites is supposed to be shocking to us. It's supposed to make us say, wait a second, something's not right here. But what about it doesn't make sense? What about it is shocking? The answer here is pretty apparent. It's shocking because we just got done talking about how Jonah was shown immense mercy and forgiveness by God in chapter 2. God used the whale to save Jonah from certain death and to show him that his disobedience was no barrier to God's love and forgiveness in his life. Now, to add to the absurdity of this timeline, Jonah was also very aware of this mercy on God's part, was he not? The entirety of chapter 2 is a song, a beautiful, wonderful song that Jonah wrote thanking God for his loving mercy and kindness. And to add the icing on the cake to the absurdity of the story, now in chapter 4, not only has Jonah seemingly forgotten about God's forgiveness for him, he accuses God of being merciful as an insult as a reason that he didn't trust God from the start. In fact, Jonah uses the beautiful words of another psalm, Psalm 86, 15, which joyfully and thankfully exclaims, But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And now Jonah practically screams at God in defiance. I knew you were a merciful God and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Jesus may have had this very story in mind when he told a story of his own in the New Testament. In probably one of his most challenging parables the parable of the unmerciful servant. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. 
Be patient with me and I will pay it. He pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. It's a very similar story, isn't it? A man just forgiven of so much, refusing to allow his heart to desire the forgiveness of others. Now, Jesus' parable makes the shocking aspect of the unforgiveness even greater by making the second debt so small compared with the first. The servant refuses to forgive a debt of a few thousand dollars when he himself had been forgiven millions. We are supposed to be astounded by this. The point of the story is to make this seem outrageous. And after a long time grappling with this story, it finally hit me what the unmerciful servant's problem really was and what Jonah's problem really was. And I'm afraid that when you and I sometimes fail to be able to forgive another what our problem really is. We will never, ever be able to forgive someone else. Our hearts will never, ever desire love and forgiveness to be poured out for another if we ourselves do not feel forgiven. Forgiveness and mercy are not easy. They require sacrifice. They require a death. If someone releases another of a debt, that money doesn't just get magically wired back into the account. It's gone. Poof. Vanished. That's a sacrifice. There's a real cost to forgiveness. And we will not be able to accept that cost ourselves on behalf of another if we do not first feel completely forgiven and accepted and made whole to start with. Think about the unmerciful servant. How could he refuse to forgive the other servant? The reality of the debt that was forgiven him didn't register It wasn't real to him. How could Jonah refuse to accept God's forgiveness of the Ninevites? His own journey of disobedience and yet amazing, loving forgiveness by God for some reason didn't register. In that moment, it wasn't real to him. And when we are wronged, why are we sometimes so unable to forgive and let go because our own status as beloved, accepted, forgiven children of God somehow doesn't register. In the moment that it comes time to forgive, it isn't real to us. It hasn't gripped our hearts to the point that it has changed our reality and our identity. 
you want to know why I'm so wretched to fans of the other teams, the other sports teams that I root against? It's because my own teams let me down so often. Misery loves company, right? I don't feel fulfilled by my teams at all when they're constantly, constantly letting me down and blowing these huge games in utterly heart-wrenching fashion. So I'm not approaching others from any kind of place of security or contentment. But this doesn't have to be our story. Because the reality is that we are loved. We are forgiven. We have been rescued from certain death by God, just like Jonah. And this rescue has come at great, great cost to God. He ransomed his own life to save ours. And we started by framing this truth in the negative, by saying we will never ever be able to forgive if we don't feel forgiven first. But implied in that negative statement is the positive inverse. When we do feel forgiven, we are then truly freed to be able to forgive and show mercy and love and grace to others that we encounter in this world. We are freed to pray for God's mercy, not his destruction, even for our enemies. The beautiful, hopeful reality of the gospel, if truly accepted and believed, is that we no longer see the face of another, the face of an enemy, when we see another race, another class, another gender, the fan of another sports team, a proponent of another political party, even someone who has wronged us. Instead, we see ourselves. We see the face of a person who's in extreme, dire need of grace, just like we are. And when we see that we have already been offered that grace, through no merit of our own, then we will begin to desire it for others. We will see the image of God himself when we look upon the face of another person, and we will desire with everything we have to help deepen and uh, strengthen that image of God within them. So Jonah, at the end of this chapter, is standing there overlooking the city of Nineveh. And he despises it and the people there for being spared of destruction and suffering. And let's not make the mistake this morning of ignoring this tendency of the human heart. But let's also joyfully sit at the feet of Jesus, who hundreds of years later would similarly stand on a hill overlooking a great city. Only this city was Jerusalem. A city where Jesus himself was going to be arrested, 
and mocked and tortured and killed a city that he knew decades after his death would be invaded and destroyed. And he wept. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. He wept for the people in their lostness and the destruction that they were bringing on themselves because he loved them. My prayer for all of us this morning is that we would be so overwhelmed by the love, grace, and mercy of God poured out through Jesus that we could not help but desire those things for the rest of the world as well. Thanksgiving is upon us. And as I was preparing this message, it occurred to me that this is no coincidence. God's timing is quite perfect. Because the first step toward living into this beautiful picture where our primary identities are as the beloved, forgiven, accepted children of God is to be thankful. To be truly thankful in a way that seeps deep down into our hearts. To be thankful that the Lord is a God of compassion and mercy slow to get angry and filled with deep, deep, unfailing love. This may seem like a trivial step at first when we consider the daunting nature of the us versus them mentality that is threatening to pull, slowly tear our society apart. But there is much power in it. The power of the gospel The good news of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes much, and it can and will continue to accomplish much, much more of this. I am utterly convinced. Hatred and disdain crumble, absolutely crumble in the face of sacrificial love. Do you believe this? There is hope for us, and there is hope for the world, brothers and sisters. That hope started here on the cross. And it hopefully comes here among us and out there in the world. But first, it must travel through here, through the hearts of each and every one of us. And it gets in here when we look upon the glorious, beautiful, merciful face of Christ and are thankful for God's great, great love for us. Speaking of hope, I have one last thing to say about the book of Jonah. Now, one of the questions that I asked myself after I finished reading the book, was, whatever happened to Jonah? The story ends quite abruptly with God asking Jonah a question. Shouldn't I have mercy on these people? And the story never tells us what Jonah's reaction is. Not right then or ever. 
Now, this is why I choose to believe that the book of Jonah was meant to be read as a real historical account of his life and that he wrote the book himself. I actually read a couple of commentaries that suggested that Jonah couldn't have been the author of this book because of just how poorly he is portrayed in it. And I thought, that's a really silly reason to believe that he didn't write it. Because if Jonah did write the book and chose to portray himself that way, to honestly assess his own hardness of heart and his, his hatred and disdain for the Ninevites, that could really only mean one thing. That Jonah finally, eventually, came to know and understand the love and mercy of God. That he finally felt forgiven in a way that allowed him to write his own story as the journey of a man who had come from such incredible weakness to be restored and redeemed to such unbelievable strength. What a testament to the power of God's love. And what hope that gives us. For if the love of God can transform a heart like Jonah's, it can certainly transform ours too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a hard word. We thank you that you are a God who would not stand aside and let us go down a path of destruction, but you would lovingly correct and pull us back on the track to love and hope and salvation. And thank you that you have gone before us. You have reached out and literally pulled us onto this track yourself through the amazing love and mercy and sacrifice of Jesus. It is in his hopeful and merciful name that we pray this morning. And we all said, amen.